you'll turn with me to Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 57. These scriptures that I will read for us in a moment, they tell us about the birth of John the Baptist. And they are filled with prophetic promises. They're prophecies that tell about the special ministry that God called John the Baptist to carry out even before he was born. And that's important to remember. And intertwined with those prophetic words are also promises that not only tell about the immediate days of John and the Lord Jesus, but also tell about days that are yet to come. Days that span all the way into the millennial kingdom in the very last days of this earth. Folks, I mention this because God is eternal. God is eternal and all of His plans are eternal. And here in these words, we're being invited into the very beginning moments of God's eternal plan for the redemption of all of those who will turn and give their hearts to Him. Both His children at the time, the Israelites, and also us, you and me, His adopted children. And praise the Lord for that. Listen to these words beginning in verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by that name. And they made signs to his father. Recall that Zechariah could not speak at the time. They made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet. And he wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately, Zechariah's mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came upon all the neighbors and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he prophesied saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he has visited and redeemed his people. And has raised up a a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hands of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our father and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, John, will be called a prophet of the Most High God. And you will go before the Lord to prepare His way to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high and give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. And the child John grew and became strong in spirit And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance in Israel. One of the doctrines of the Presbyterian church and of some of the Baptist churches 
is a doctrine that sometimes unites the members together, but at other times gives cause for them to disagree. That doctrine is the doctrine of predestination. The doctrine of predestination. You very seldom hear it preached in our Baptist churches today. But in Baptist churches of decades gone by, it was a regular part of the doctrine. The doctrine of predestination is the belief that God truly is sovereign and that He truly does insert His hand into the lives and the affairs of men and women on the earth, causing things to take place. Things that would not have taken place naturally, even as far as to ordain the eternal destiny of men and women, seemingly without regard for their personal plans. Now, while that doctrine might be uncomfortable to some people, we do know with a certainty that it was not a doctrine that was contrived out of the minds of men, but instead it comes straight out of the mind of God onto the pages of these scriptures, this pure and holy truth of God. Listen carefully. This is what God says to us about this matter of predestination. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. God tells us there, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Listen. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will, of His will, to the praise and the glory of His grace, by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. And then continuing on down in verse 11 of Ephesians 1, In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, that we who first trusted in Christ, should be to the praise of His glory. And then over in Romans chapter 8, he tells us, beginning in verse 29, For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be conformed, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He predestined, those He also called, whom He called, those He also justified, whom He justified, those He also glorified. Predestination is real, and it is as much a part of these scriptures as any of the other doctrines that we hold so dear. The doctrines of salvation, of redemption, of sanctification, and the others that we hold dear. And it's only as men grab hold of those doctrines and misapply them using some of their own interpretations that these doctrines get misunderstood, and they also get corrupted. And most of the objections to predestination that I have heard people make seem most often to have to do with their unrelenting need to maintain their own status of having a free will. Often holding to a doctrine that simply is not in the Scriptures. It's a doctrine that insists that God would never violate man's free will. You can't imagine how many times I've heard that said from a pulpit. But it's not in the Scriptures. That's not in the Scriptures. Folks, God is not required to seek your or my counsel or our permission before He makes His plans and then carries them out. He is God and He is sovereign over all His creation. 
and to insist that He seek our permission in matters that involve us makes us to be the ones who are sovereign. May I say that again? To insist that God seek our permission in matters like that or of any kind borders on making us to be the ones who are sovereign. Now, I personally don't understand that kind of humanistic rationale. God is far more trustworthy to make right and good decisions than I am. And praise the Lord that He is. Predestination simply states that God can and does have a plan for each of our lives. How many times did you hear Billy Graham utter those very words? God has a plan for your life. And He does. And predestination simply states that, that God does have a plan for each of our lives. And He foreordains how those plans are going to take place. And part of His plan includes predetermining the life and the eternity of those whom He chooses. But why is the doctrine of predestination important to our study of these scriptures before us today? It's because these words that we have been reading here in Luke chapter 1, they are filled with exactly that. God making choices in the lives of men and women, irrespective of their own plans, and then carrying out those plans to completion. God did that first in the life of Zechariah, Elizabeth, and Mary. He did not seek their counsel first, and neither would He seek the permission of John the Baptist before bringing him into this world and then sending him out to prepare the way of the Lord Jesus. But as Ephesians 1 tells us, of his own will and purposes, God ordained and carried forward all the things that we read about taking place here in Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2 involving Zechariah, Elizabeth, Mary, John the Baptist. And all of these things began long even before either of these babies were born, before they were even conceived in the wombs of their mother, even long before the foundations of the earth were laid. That's what we just read in Ephesians chapter 1. Here in clear and plain language, we see that God, of His own will, inserted His hand into the life of Zechariah, of Elizabeth, and Mary, and He foreordained each of these events that were taking place in their life. He chose Elizabeth and Mary to bear children. He chose Mary to bear the Lord Jesus, the Savior of the world. If you remember that conversation that the angel had with Mary, he did not ask her permission. He simply said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will conceive a child in your womb, the Holy One of God. He chose Elizabeth to bear the great prophet John the Baptist, a prophet that he says here in these words will go out ahead of Jesus to prepare the hearts of men and women to receive that salvation that Jesus then would give to them. Folks, God brought John the Baptist onto this earth to carry out a very special mission. He didn't ask first. John wasn't even born. But He brought him on, into this, onto this earth to carry out a special mission. And here in verse 76, Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit, prophesied about what this baby was going to do. He said there, Verse 76, a new child will be called the prophet of the highest and you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare His way, to give knowledge of salvation to His people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God with which the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. 
And John would do exactly that. John would do exactly that. Later on, after John grew up and began to preach, regarding the Lord Jesus, it was said of John in Mark chapter 1. Listen to these words in Mark chapter 1. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight his paths. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all of the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal straps I'm not worthy to stoop down and to loose. I indeed will baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Praise the Lord. Those words are so very clear. John's calling was foreordained long before John was ever born. To go ahead of Jesus, preaching a message. You recall that he's a few months older than Jesus. And so he went out there ahead of Jesus and he was preaching this message of repentance for the remission of sins. And he was to baptize the people. And that baptism was a symbol of the washing away of their sins. With that preparation, the hearts of the people were ready for the gospel of salvation. They needed that preparation by the prophet John to prepare the hearts to receive the salvation that Jesus would preach to them. And as Jesus would save them, He would do as was prophesied. He would baptize them with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That's exciting, folks. I don't know what most of you have studied and believed in the past about such matters as these, of God foreordaining the steps of men and women and even the predestination of their eternal souls. But it's clear from these words here in chapter 1 that God makes plans for men and women's lives. And He carries His plans out to completion. Now as for the words in Ephesians 1 and in Romans 8 that I read a few moments ago, God knew us. Those words tell us that God knew us. He knew us. K-N-E-W. He knew us before the foundation of the world. God's eternal. God sees Yesterday, today, and tomorrow, all at the same time. We don't understand that. We can't fathom such mysteries as that. But God, right at this moment, He sees the very moment that He created this earth, and He sees the very moment that He will destroy it and bring back a new one. God knew us before all of the foundations of the world were laid. It's a foreknowledge. But that's more than just knowing It's more than just having this intellectual knowledge of us. It was a kind of foreknowledge that has relationship in it. The Greek word for this is epinosis. Gnosis means to know, to have knowledge, much as someone to have an academic knowledge of something. But epinosis is a relationship knowledge, just as my knowledge of my wife is. I know her with a deep abiding love. And that's what this word foreknowledge is all about. It's a deep, abiding, eternal, everlasting love. 
And from those very first moments, before time began, God had a plan for each of us, a plan that He would orchestrate and carry forward from the moments of our conception and our birth until we join Him in the everlasting glories of heaven. And He promises that to us. Listen to these words again that I read to us a moment ago from beginning in verse 29 of Romans 8. For whom He foreknew, remember, whom He knew with this relational love, for whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He predestined, those He also called. And then those whom He called, He also justified. Those whom He justified, He also glorified. He takes us from the very beginning right on into glory. He has hold of us. We are in His hand. And He carries us all the way from predestination to being called, to being justified, to being glorified. And we can also see God's plan being carried out there in the life of John the Baptist. Here in Luke chapter 1 and in Mark 1 and in other portions of these Gospels, we can clearly see that before John the Baptist was even born, God had foreordained all those steps of his life. Right here, as we're reading in the beginning of his life, and then all the way through to the end, his birth, his life, even his death, and on into eternity. Nothing was left for anyone to alter or to change. This was God's plan. And it went just exactly according to His plan. And note here that even His name, John, was part of the plan. God kept every minute detail of John's life under His own control, even His name. Now, why God insisted on naming him John, I'm not altogether sure. But just as Jesus would later on rename His disciples, I believe that God simply wanted to remove all the vestiges of John's self-life from Him right from the beginning. A name carries with it a history of family and of self. God wants His children to be unique to His calling. And from these scriptures we can clearly see that John remained faithful to His name and to His calling. From all that we read later about John's ministry. He did all that God foreordained for him to do. And Jesus would later compliment John by saying that there was no greater man born of a woman than John the Baptist. I think it's exciting to see how here even in the earliest moments of John's existence that God was at work within his soul. We spoke of this in an earlier message. And it's wonderful. While he was still in his mother's womb, John leaped for joy when Jesus, yet unborn, entered into the room. You and I have been so indoctrinated with the worldly ideas that unborn babies are nothing more than a fetus. I confess to you, I don't like that word. I know it's technically true. That's what an unborn baby is called. But it's so, it takes all the life out of that baby to call it a fetus. Or even worse, some call that unborn baby a blob of tissue. Listen, because a baby has been reduced to almost nothing in a mother's womb, that's why so many can feel so comfortable and have no mercy as they slaughter babies for abortion. But again, as we can clearly read here in these words, while still in his mother's womb, John recognized the presence of Jesus, the King of glory, the King of glory, and he leaped with joy. You and I might not understand it all, 
But why should that matter? Why should that matter? Even in the womb, John rejoiced at the presence of the Lord. You and I, by faith, ought to also rejoice at the presence of the Lord. And folks, John's rejoicing would not end there. He would rejoice more and more as he would grow and and go into his ministry that God had called him to carry out. Later in John chapter 3, in talking to some of his own disciples, they were asking him, who are you? How do you relate to this man Jesus? And John said to them, I'm not the Christ. I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride, listen to these words, precious words. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. Folks, John never stopped leaping for joy. Here in these words, John presents himself as the friend of the bridegroom, the best man at the wedding. And John tells his followers that as the friend of the bridegroom, He rejoices greatly. He leaps with joy as he did in the womb of his mom. He leaps with joy as he hears the voice of the bridegroom. A note here. God defined a very special role for John the Baptist. As was said in these words I just read, John would be the friend of the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom. He was not the Christ. He was the friend of the bridegroom. The bride would never belong to him, but would ever and always only belong to Christ, the bridegroom. That's so important. As friends of the bridegroom, you and I must never be found guilty of seeking the affections of the bride for ourselves, but must always turn the affections of the bride back to Jesus, the bridegroom. It must be your and my earnest desire that the bride would always leap for joy at the presence of Christ. Too often in today's church organizations, many of the church leaders have their own personal followings. People flocking to see and to hear the words of their preacher. That has a good side to it. But folks, it also has a very, very wrong side to it. It is only good if those people are gathering to hear about the Lord Jesus and Him alone. Any other motive is wrong. Before we close, let's consider again why God gives us this glimpse into the details of these private conversations of these dear servants, Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary. I believe it's because God wants you and me to know that He was at work in every minute detail of this very special event that was taking place in their lives. Nothing was left to chance or to the will of men. Why is that so important? It's because God wants us to know with a certainty that He not only created and set this world into motion, He also inserts His hand into its daily workings and He sustains and He controls all that takes place. Does He allow our free will to intermingle into all of these matters that He's foreordaining for us? Yes, He does. That's a mystery, but He does. The Westminster Confession of Faith reminds us that God is the first cause of everything that takes place, but that He does not do away with second causes. 
Those second causes are your and my responses. Somehow, God brings those together. Our free will and His first causes. And yes, our free will can and does change some of the direction of God's plans for us. But only to the extent that He deems good for us. Otherwise, God's plans and His purposes will stand and they will be carried out to completion. So let me ask you, are you willing to be as these dear servants of God? Zechariah, Elizabeth, Mary. To be vessels of God's service. To yield up the plans and the purposes that you and I have ordained for our life in favor of an alternative plan that God has for you and me. Because He does often. God has an alternate plan for you and me. So often. Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary, they were willing. They were willing. And they would be greatly blessed because of their willingness. But folks, as we can now see, their blessing, their surrender, went beyond their receiving a personal blessing for themselves. The entire world was blessed because of these dear servants and their willingness to do what God wants them to do. Can you imagine that for yourself? that the surrender you might have right now, today, might bless men and women for an eternity. That is the way that God will work if we will only be willing to surrender ourselves up to His service. Listen as we close. First from Jeremiah twenty-nine eleven: For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, but to bring you a future and a hope. And then Philippians 1.6 Confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. Let's pray.